Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show rigorously, faithfully devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you probably already know. Uh, we begin with the fact that unquestionably the big story of the past week was the Vatican's protest of a draft anti-homophobia law here in Italy. Three points on that. First, an unprecedented move. Second, Jesuits collide. And third, the sound of silence. And then two other points of interest from the past week, winkin', blinkin', and nod. And finally, to sort of wrap things up, a kind of funky choice for mayor. That's what we've got for you this week on the other side. So please stick around. So happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, June 28th, 2021. This is the vigil of the fe the great feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Uh, but uh, it is also two days after Italy qualifying for the quarterfinals of the European Soccer Championships and a hard-fought victory over Austria 2-1. to one. Uh, So Italians are jubilant. Everybody is feeling great. Things are right with the world. Uh, and tomorrow is a holiday, so buona festa, uh, as we would say here in Italy. Happy holidays to all of you. We begin with the Vatican's unprecedented, and, and let me just be clear with you folks, I've been covering the Vatican for more than 20 years. Now the Vatican has in various forms more than 2,000 years of history. You don't get to use the word unprecedented very often. Rare, sure. Unusual, sure. Striking, noteworthy, yeah. Unprecedented? Not so much. Uh, but this development is actually completely unprecedented because the Vatican, for the very first time, invoked its rights under the terms of a 1929 treaty with the new Republic of Italy called the Lateran Pax, which were comprehensively updated in 1984 to lodge a formal diplomatic objection against an Italian law. And the remarkable thing is this isn't even a law yet. Uh, it's a draft law, what, what we Americans would call a bill. Uh, it's been approved by the lower house of the Italian parliament, the Camera dei Deputati, the, the, camp, the, 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 sorry, the, the Chamber of Deputies, uh, and is, it is currently before the Italian Senate. Uh, specifically its Commission on Justice. Uh, the bill is called the Zahn Bill, uh, after Alessandro Zahn, who is an openly gay member of parliament. He belongs to the Italian Democratic Party, so that's the main center-left party here in Italy. Uh, and what it would do uh, is create a new law against homophobia. Uh, so it, it would mandate a curriculum in Italian schools on tolerance. It would criminalize various forms of hate speech uh, and so on. 
It's analogous to anti-homophobia laws that exist in most American states and that exist in most Western European countries. Now, uh, this bill is backed by the country's governing coalition. Uh, it is opposed by center-right forces in this country, particularly the Lega Party, that is the kind of far-right, anti-immigrant, populist party led by former Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. So, the Vatican... Uh, now, the Vatican often takes position on public policy issues, so that in itself uh, is not particularly unusual. But what it did in this case is file a formal diplomatic protest, something called a nota verbale, which was uh, written by the Vatican Secretariat of State, that's the kind of main coordinating department in the Vatican, uh, and it was presented to the Italian ambassador to the Vatican because, yes, these are two separate states. Uh, they have diplomatic relations. So there's a Vatican ambassador to Italy and there's an Italian ambassador to the Vatican. The Italian ambassador to the Vatican is, an, is a guy by the name of Pietro uh, Sambatrini. And the Vatican presented this nota verbale to him uh, and it was then relayed to the Vata, er, sorry, to Italy's foreign ministry uh, and went on up the food chain. Uh, basically, what it says is that if this law were adopted, it would be a violation of the uh, pledges of respect for religious freedom that were made in the 1929 Lateran Pacts and confirmed in the 1984 renegotiation of that treaty. Now, the Lateran Pacts are what settled the so-called Roman question. The, it, basically, what happened is that in the late 19th century, Italy decided it wanted to unify. They took away the Papal States, the territories that the Pope governed as a civil ruler, uh, and consigned him to the Vatican. Uh, and in 1929, they settled all this. Italy paid a lot of money to the Vatican and promised to respect the religious freedom of Catholic institutions in Italy. In exchange, the Vatican acknowledged the new Italian state. Uh, it was a big deal. All right, so now the Vatican is saying, you are reneging uh, on those promises. Uh, and their argument is really twofold. One. Uh, that the school curriculum for tolerance that would be required as a part of this law would also be mandatory for private Catholic schools, uh, and it might undercut Catholic teaching on sexuality and marriage. That's objection number one. Objection number two is that these new hate speech laws might criminalize a Catholic priest giving a homily, for instance, uh, in which he says marriage is only between a man and a woman. That's classic Catholic teaching. They're worried that this new law is so vague that could now actually be criminal. Uh, so those are the objections. Uh, the point is, this is an absolutely unprecedented move uh, by the Vatican. Uh, we will see well, where it develops from here. All right, point two, uh, Jesuits collide. So the Vatican made this protest in mid-June. Now, it took, I don't know, a, a week and a half for this thing to leak out. 
Uh, it was Tuesday of the past week when Corriere della Sera, which is kind of the New York Times of Italy, uh, reported uh, this Vatican protest, quoted from the text of it, quoted accurately, I should say, uh, and so this became public knowledge. Now, that created a firestorm here in Italy. I mean, not only because most polls show that somewhere between half and two-thirds of Italians support this law, but also because Italy has a long history of what the Italians call ingerenza, uh, which is a word that basically means interference, that is, the Vatican trying to interfere uh, in, Vat in Italian affairs. Uh, and they don't like it, okay? This awakens stereotypes of clerics trying to assert their privilege, trying to suggest they're better and more important than everyone else. So whenever the impression is uh, that clerics uh, are trying to tell Italy what to do, most Italians are going to get mad. And that is exactly what happened uh, in this instance. So from Tuesday through uh, the next 36 hours to Wednesday evening, there was this burgeoning cloud of anger uh, in Italy uh, about the Vatican basically uh, trying to stick its nose into Italian business. Now, Wednesday evening, as it happened, Prime Minister Mario Draghi, the leader of Italy, was scheduled to appear before the Italian Senate to talk about COVID relief efforts. And his appearance included a question and answer session. Now, by that point, it was written into the stars that somebody was going to ask Draghi about this thing from the Vatican. And because there was nothing else to inform Draghi's deliberations, he went into that session and he took the question and he basically gave the Vatican a verbal tongue lashing. He said, look, this is a secular state, not a confessional state. Uh, parliament, the Italian parliament, is free to make its own deliberations and to make its own decisions. And basically his message to the Vatican was, here, how about this? You do your job, we're gonna do ours. And that was it. Now the thing of it is, when Draghi, former head of the European Central Bank, was chosen as the Prime Minister of Italy in mid-February, it was thought, this is great news for the Vatican. He's a product of Jesuit education. He has friends in the Jesuit order. He is a serious Catholic. He and his wife are regular mass goers. The theory was, this is a match made in heaven. And yet, we got to the point where on the floor of the Italian Senate, Mario Draghi, the Prime Minister of Italy, basically had to deliver what amounts to a public rebuke to the Vatican for trying to dictate to Italy what to do. This brings us to point three, the sounds of silence. So the Vatican, from when this story broke on Tuesday morning, and it was about 7.30 in the morning when Corriere della Sera issued its morning edition, to about 10 o'clock Thursday morning, said absolutely nothing. 
phone calls to Vatican spokespersons and Vatican officials to try to get comment were totally fruitless. There was a corporate decision to shut things down. Now, here's the thing about silence. When the Vatican decides to go silent, that doesn't mean there will be no sound. It simply means the sounds will be provided by others. So in the Italian press in particular, but also internationally, there was a cacophony of voices suggesting that the Vatican was sticking its nose in where it doesn't belong, that this was a desperate attempt by conservatives in the Vatican to block social progress, uh, that Pope Francis himself was completely unaware uh, of this move by the Secretariat of State, uh, and that it was basically a colossal blunder uh, on the part of traditionalists within the Vatican who were trying to go down like, I don't know, Butch and Sundance uh, in a blaze of fire in Bolivia. Now, finally, Thursday morning, the Vatican Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, gave an interview to Vatican News, that's the official, the state-sponsored news outlet of the Vatican, in which he said essentially two things. One, uh, we are not trying to defend homophobia. The teaching of the Catholic Church says that all people need to be treated with dignity and respect, and that includes LGBTQ plus uh, individuals. Uh, and secondly, uh, the only reason we did this before the law was actually passed is because we wanted to try to handle this informally uh, and get ahead of the problem rather than waiting until this became a legal, constitutional, and diplomatic nightmare. Thing of it is, both of those points are absolutely true. It's absolutely true that there are real religious freedom concerns with this law, that the wording of the statutes is so vague that you don't really know uh, what's being banned here. Uh, it's true that if the Vatican had waited uh, until the law was actually passed, things would have become much more uh, intractable. And it's also true that the Vatican, especially under Pope Francis, is hardly an apologist for homophobia. Pope Francis is probably the most LGBTQ plus friendly pope uh, in the history of the Catholic Church. The thing of it is, had they said all of that much earlier, the story might be very different. Uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi might never have found himself on the floor of the Italian Senate facing ungovernable political pressure to lash back at the Vatican. Uh, Italian media outlets might not have found themselves for 48 hours making the Vatican look like the Darth Vader uh, of this story. What should have happened here, ladies and gentlemen, is that when the Vatican submitted this nota verbale, this diplomatic protest, to the Italian government, it should have immediately announced it to the outside world, and it should have explained why it was doing it, what it hoped to accomplish, and what it was not trying to do. That's what any other institution in the world facing what it has to know 
otherwise is going to be a PR nightmare, would have done. However, uh, the Vatican, for inexplicable reasons, which even I, uh, after 20 plus years, cannot fathom, chose not to do that, and instead allowed the bomb to detonate before it attempted to defuse it. Go figure. All right, two other points for this week. One, winkin', blinkin', and nod. So today, uh, which of course is an old children's nursery rhyme, uh, today U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the Vatican. He had a meeting with Pope Francis, then he met with the, the Vatican's top diplomatic brass uh, as part of a European swing. Now, in itself, there's nothing particularly remarkable about that. U.S. secretaries of state come to Europe a lot. Uh, and if they're in the vicinity of Rome, they almost always drop in in the Vatican. Often, they see the Pope. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, under President Bush, saw the Pope. Uh, Colin Powell, under President Bush, saw the Pope, uh, and on and on. What makes this particularly striking, of course, uh, is that it comes on the heels of the Catholic bishops of the United States voting to move forward on a document on the Eucharist which may or may not contain a section, which may or may not uh, have implications for whether U.S. President Joe Biden, Antony Blinken's boss, will be eligible to receive the Eucharist because of his position on abortion. Now, let us be clear. Blinken was not at the Vatican to discuss President Biden's ecclesiastical status. He was not at the Vatican to discuss abortion. He is the United States' top foreign policy officer. They were meeting to discuss foreign policy. That said, uh, the fact that Pope Francis received Antony Blinken shortly after uh, this major news story out of the United States, in some quarters, inevitably will be seen uh, as the Pope trying to tell the U.S. bishops, essentially, cool your jets. Right, um, The Vatican tried that before this vote by the U.S. bishops. The head, excuse me, the head of the Vatican's doctrinal office sent a letter to the U.S. bishops telling them not to do anything that would damage the unity of the American church, which was basically understood as a, a kind of instruction to back down. One of the Pope's closest allies and advisors, Jesuit father uh, Antonio Spadato, gave an interview in which he, to the New York Times in which he said, we don't want to see the Eucharist weaponized, that is, turned into a political football. Uh, so, uh, inevitably, some observers will see this as the Pope's way uh, of telling the hardcore anti-Biden faction in the U.S. bishops to stand down. Uh, we will see how all of that plays out. In the meantime, all we can say uh, is that when it comes to foreign policy as opposed to domestic policy, the Biden White House and the Vatican have a lot more in common than what divides them. Finally, this week, a, a kind of funky choice for mayor. So, the Polish town of Piaski 
which is about an hour outside Lublin, near, also near Gdansk. It's in the south of Poland, uh, near the border with Russia. So Piaski last week had an election for mayor. Really, it's called the city administrator, but the closest equivalent in English is mayor. Now, apparently in the Polish system, the city administrator doesn't have much real power. Basically speaking, it's a kind of ceremonial post, uh, and most of the real decisions uh, are made by a city manager in combination with the regional and ultimately the national government. But anyway, they had to elect somebody to this ceremonial post to kind of represent the city. They elected uh, a guy by the name of Slovaj Glutz. Okay, so a Polish city elected a new mayor. Well, here's the thing. Slovaj Glutz is a Catholic archbishop. Uh, he was formerly the archbishop of Gdansk. Uh, and what is significant uh, about this uh, is that Archbishop Glutz on March 29th uh, was disciplined by the Vatican. He was ordered to essentially retreat into private life on the basis of charges that he had mishandled sexual abuse cases, that is, clerical sexual abuse cases, while uh, he was the Archbishop of Gdansk. Uh, now, what's happening here, right? Why would the why would a town of Pia, this town of Piaski, why would they elect a disgraced Catholic archbishop as their mayor? Well, number one, Piaski is Archbishop Glutz's hometown, so I mean clearly there is some, you know, uh, affection for the local boy there. Number two. Poland is a country uh, where, I mean, I don't want to say everybody, but a fairly broad swath of the Catholic population still to this day believes that the clerical sexual abuse scandals have been exaggerated and are to some extent a media invention intended to beat up on the Catholic Church. Uh, and three, to be quite honest with you, many Polish Catholics are not exactly the biggest fans of Pope Francis to begin with. For one thing, Polish Catholics tend to be a little bit more conservative, a little bit more traditional, therefore probably aren't wild uh, about some things they associate with this papacy. Uh, for another, uh, Poland's economy is heavily reliant on the production of coal, Remember that in Pope Francis's environmental encyclical Laudato Si, he called for significant reductions uh, in coal production and consumption. That might have the effect of putting a lot of Polish miners out of work. Uh, and so for a whole variety of reasons, I think it is fair to say that some Polish Catholics are not the biggest fan of this pope. Uh, and so maybe you could look at this vote uh, as a kind of referendum of protest uh, on a variety of fronts. Nevertheless, the optics are these. A Polish Catholic archbishop who has been found guilty by an ecclesiastical tribunal of either turning a blind eye or willfully covering up accusations of clerical sexual abuse 
has now been elected mayor by his hometown. I mean, if you ever want an answer to the question of whether the fight against clerical sexual abuse in the Catholic Church is actually over, whether there's work left to be done, I mean, I would suggest maybe this election result provides an answer. All right, that is our show for this week. A few things before we wrap up. Number one, you can find full coverage of all the stories we have talked about today on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Number two, when you go on the site, you will find we are in the middle of our online fundraising drive. Uh, what we're really looking for are people who are willing to make a small, modest, but stable monthly commitment to Crux. Could be what you would spend in an average month on a couple cups of coffee. Maybe it's streaming a movie from Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. Whatever it is, doesn't have to be very much. But that monthly commitment uh, means uh, we can make plans, we can move forward. It is critically important. So if you have the means and if you enjoy what you find in the correct site, please, please help us out. And from the bottom of our collective hearts, thank you for doing it. Also, uh, if you enjoy this show last week in the church, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet, go on the social media platform of your choice, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. We wanna to try to put this show in front, of, in front of as many eyeballs as we possibly can. Uh, next Monday, we are going to be off. It is the July 4th holiday in the United States, but two weeks from now, uh, we will see one another once again uh, on Monday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a blessed and joyous fortnight, and we will talk to you again soon.